Hey, this is Miles Fisher. Thanks for listening to Coffee with the Greats. Today we are bringing in the young guns. Finally, we're talking with Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, whose combined age doesn't even come close to our most senior guests. But the truth is, theirs is one of the most extraordinary stories of the 21st century so far. Now, if you're new to this podcast, let me give some quick context. I love deep, thoughtful conversation. It's what I grew up on, and I've been lucky to interview fascinating people of every background imaginable about how they define a life well-lived. Now, personally, I found that when I speak with someone, the conversation becomes more sincere when someone else in their family is around to listen. There's less need to impress, you know, just less tolerance for BS. And so to that end, I flipped it with my podcast. I bring along my own father to join me in a conversation with my guests, and it's unlocked something special that you hear in each of our episodes. The interviews are less about resume building and sound bites, and more about the human experience and the humility that's gained from life's inevitable setbacks. So here's the deal. My father, Richard, is 72. He led the Federal Reserve Bank in Dallas for many years as a central banker and CEO. Before that, he had a distinguished career as a diplomat and investor. I'm 37. I founded a coffee roasting business called Bixby. And before that, I had a great run acting in movies and TV shows and creating original viral videos. Obviously, the idea of the Winklevi a.k.a. the Bitcoin boys, talking to a former Fed official about the future of money and global currency. It's fascinating. I prepared long and hard for this interview, studying up on crypto, non-fungible tokens, this whole new paradigm of blockchain. But quickly, as you'll hear, our conversation took a different turn, um, a very emotional one. And we all chose to speak at length about something the twins have never made public before. I'll let the conversation speak for itself, but I just want to say that I hold these guys in the highest esteem. And I have ever since I met them uh, as undergrads in college where we were all assigned to the same dorm. We even used to play guitar together. Look, you've heard of the Winklevoss. You know their athleticism is Olympian. Their IQ is off the charts. But you'll hear that it's their EQ, their emotional quotient that reveals a thoughtfulness and sensitivity that's pretty easy to miss when you just see two handsome multi-billionaire twins on the cover of magazines. Thank you for listening. Please do check out earlier episodes for in-depth personal conversations with the likes of Jamie Dimon, Bob Iger, Mike Milken, and many others. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. Maybe even give us a five-star review. That helps others discover the podcast. Last thing, and this is important given the nature of what we discuss, if what you hear resonates with you or somebody you know, please text them this episode. You know, in a, in a world of endless noise where everybody's talking and no one is listening, all I want to do is capture authentic conversations worth listening to. I think the following certainly fits the bill. So brew up a fresh cup of that Bixby coffee and enjoy this episode of Coffee with the Greats with Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss. We were born in uh, Southampton, New York. We were uh, summer August babies. 
Um, and but actually, our parents were living in Palo Alto, um, and we're just out out in Long Island for for the summer. Our dad at the time, um, he was, I believe, leaving his professorship at uh, Wharton, where he's a teacher, and starting to go into the private sector. And so he was a professor of insurance and started to consult with uh, big Fortune 500 companies on their pension plans and how to, um, you know, basically set aside um, that the contribution into those plans um, and decided to go out into the private sector. And I think started in in um, uh, Philadelphia, but was on the road so much selling that it didn't really matter where he was you know, laying his head down in the weekends. Uh, and they, he sort of fell in love with, with the West Coast. Um, so during that time, um, he started building that that consulting business and then decided, they uh, took a bet on the personal computer and the idea that everybody would basically have one of those on, on their desk. And so started building a, a software company around that so that he could move away from the billable hour um, and really become a software provider. Um, and Tyler, correct me if I'm getting some of this story right or wrong, but I believe the, the first iteration of that company, he sold to uh, Johnson and Higgins, uh, and they wanted him to come back to the East Coast and and work in the city. And um, and so uh, we we ended up moving as a family back to the East Coast. And um, I think because it was in the middle of the year, we couldn't get in. To any of the New York schools. So uh, parents looked around suburbs in the nearby area and uh, settled on Greenwich, Connecticut um, and moved there. And then after about a year or two, I think he got sort of tired of being in the big firm situation and the politics and the commute and said, I'm going to go build this again and started a, uh, a, a, a software company, uh, which he's been building for about 20, 20 years. And this was back in 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 the uh, you know late '80s, early '90s, back when startups really weren't a thing. It was really uh, all about the Fortune 500. So he was very much a technology sort of entrepreneur. And actually, his his coding background began in the '60s at at the University of Pennsylvania. And back then, um, there was no personal computers. You used these Univacs um, and a Boeing timeshare. And so only like institutions like universities had these, this kind of equipment um, to sort of learn how to program. There was not even monitors. It was like a punch card system where you'd write your program, run it into a system, and then get a punch card on the way back. And I guess stepping back just a little bit before that, I think um, he, he, he started um, building a automobile in high school. He, he built a, a Model A forward and um that was his his high school education he really pretty much flunked out and uh tried to get into penn state and was told that they only had um uh only had um hotel management left um he was pretty bummed about that went to grove city college they ended up accepting him that's where he met my mom and that's when he started to get into books and serious about learning you know, academic stuff, and then went off to uh, San Jose State to do a master's um, and eventually got his PhD at Oregon. So he started getting serious in school, in, in graduate school. 
And I think one of his professors said, you need to get uh, math and computer science or you're going to be obsolete. And this was in the 60s. And that scared the bejesus out of him. And so he started learning how to program. So fast forward to to uh, the, the, you know, uh, the 80s, he had spent 10 or 12 years at Wharton being a professor, decided to move in the private sector um, and was building this technology company in, in Connecticut in the 90s. And so as, as kids, we would sort of go to the office in, in the weekends and talk to the engineers, and read the PC mags and look at, you know, Forbes and Fortune and, you know, covers of Gates and Jobs. And that was sort of, we, we grew up inside a startup and were really kind of around the, the, the walls of, of engineers. And, and that's sort of, um, I think that's why technology and startups um, and, and taking risks comes easier to or it's very familiar territory i think if our dad was a doctor we'd probably be wearing you know white lab coats and you know and be in medicine or if he was um you know uh in an, another industry so that's sort of i think the genesis of how we got pretty facile and comfortable in in the realm of, of startups and technology so our mom is obviously a, a very big part of our formative experience um she she was sort of she uh, did I think her EED at Penn when my dad was there, um, and they they really kind of work well together and I think complement each other's skill sets. Um, my dad is is sort of very kind of creative and and gets um, like this single track and obsessive, um, but I think she's like a good counterbalance. Um, she's she's the 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 daughter of a, a police detective. And uh, I think they kind of counterbalance each other well. Um, and and um, so I think um, they've been a, a good team in, in that regard. Yeah. I, and I would say like um, pe- a lot of people have seen the social network. So they sort of start as these guys who grew up privileged from down cricket, which is true. But the arc of our family history is immigrants coming over from Germany um, in the 1850s. And like Miles pointed out, we're, we're coal miners and farmers. Uh, the next generation were farmers. And eventually they got out of the coal mines, became small town business owners. My dad sort of took that baton, became a professor of actual science at Wharton, started his own company made it to to Greenwich. Um, we went to private schools. So the the arc, the American dream arc um, lives on through our family as it sounds like it does through yours, but it it took it took about five generations to sort of get there. Um, but a lot of people don't see that part um, of the story because they sort of start at the social network, these caricatures, um, you know, and, and so they sort of assume, oh, that's where you started. But, you know, our history isn't coming over on, on the Mayflower. It, it was, uh, you know, a slightly different, different story. And, and like, um, Cameron said, our mom is, uh, her dad was a New York police detective. Um, she super nurturing, um, a great partner to my dad. And my dad says that, um, all this best business decisions, uh, were made in consultation with her and really her nudging and him and pushing him in the right direction, whether it was to believe in himself more or whatnot. So it's really, it's really like my dad is sort of billed as the business guy, but he'll tell you that, 
it's this true partnership of the two of them that have a, that have um, that are a result of his both his financial success but also his personal. Well, we are sympathetic to your story and pain as being viewed as elitist. The portrait over my shoulder here is my father, Miles's grandfather, who was actually a homeless man, begged for food, was arrested as a child, sentenced to a reformatory prison for being a beggar. And our joke was we went from homeless to Harvard in one generation. Um, yeah. <laughs> but people look at us and say, oh, the way you dress, or you're so privileged because you went to Harvard. It's really annoying. But so well, we're or not, or not, or not just that. But I can, you guys, we're the subject <laughs> of a huge movie. I had a twenty-year run in Hollywood, and you know, not personal character judgments, but in my casting, I always felt guilty until proven innocent. You know, I, I never had to audition for the roles of rich jerk. I got offered those roles all the time, <laughs> and it just drove me nuts and because it's really a two-dimensional character. Yeah, thanks, Dad. It's sort of like, um, yeah, so we, we went to Harvard, um, as you guys know, um, and we were rowers. And then we went to the national team to try and make the Olympics. But when we got there, we were the Harvard guys. And, and they're not as tough as the other guys, as the state <laughs> guys. So uh, you can kind of get it in, 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 in many different ways. And there, there's always a challenge. I mean, we've always been in environments. Like, it's not easy to be an overdog in, in private school in Greenwich, Connecticut, or everybody's a have. Um, Harvard, everybody's smart. At the national team going for the Olympics, everybody's the most talented person they've ever, they've, uh, of their peers, rowing all those years. So we've been in these like very challenging environments where it's never felt like super easy to get, you know, to, to accomplish stuff. Um, but again, it's not like a sympathetic argument. It's hard, you know, a lot of people don't quite get that. Can I ask you before we uh, go off from there, what were the basic moral or ethical values that your parents imparted to you? That's a, yeah, it's a really um, fascinating question. I, I think that um, I thought about this and I think children listen to what you say, but really more than, than that, above all else, they watch what you do. And they absorb. So I think our parents just set by example in terms of integrity, um, being kind, generous, um, you know, and having those those core principles and values. And I think we just being around that. Um, and there's also sort of a theory of expectation in the sense that, you know, you, you guys are you're smart. You you can you can apply yourselves and and do well. Um, it's really up to you. Um, so I think it was less about the spoken thing, but really just watching them how they went about their lives and interacted with people, um, uh, whether it was associates and employees in the business or, or really just people in general. And I think that's kind of how we learned our our core value set. And of course, a lot of that is you know passed down through generations. Um, they, they, um, my dad grew up in, in coal mining country in Pennsylvania. Uh, just of, you know, your, your word is your bond. Um, there there's, you know, it's not a contract. It's, it's really your word. Um, and, and there's just hardworking salt of the earth people. Um, and that legacy and history, I think just sort of flows down through the generations. Um, and my mom, the same way, I mean, her, her parents, um, hardworking, you know, uh, 
uh, people who, who um, education was very important in that generation. That was a big deal. It, I mean, it wasn't sort of explicitly said, hey, I want you to go to Harvard, but you kind of knew that that like the library was was really kind of where it was at and reading was a cool, cool thing. Um, and I sometimes, I, I, you know, you, you see uh, today, maybe you go to dinner and you see families and and the children are, are buried in iPads or, or, or the, the parenting has sort of been outsourced. And I, I just remember always wanting to get up closer to the adults and hearing what are they saying? What, what kind of interesting adult things are out there and, and sort of learning by being around that. And I do think there's something missed when, when children are, are diving too far into YouTube and and the bowels of the internet or TikTok or whatever it is. I mean, in one way, it's amazing and fascinating. On another level, there's there's a, I think uh, maybe a missed um, learning opportunity just being around your elders and older people. I would add that our parents, um, they're at least from our point of view, or my per- personal point of view, the sense of unconditional love, no matter what whether we lost a game or a match or what we did, they were always going to be there, always going to be in our corner. And I think that is super critical because that sort of safety net, like emotional bond and, 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 and uh, bond of love allowed us to adventure out and take those risks, whether it was um, trying rowing when there was no rowing, uh, program at our high school, and we eventually uh, started it. Whether it was going out in our travails against Facebook, when a lot of people in the world were against us and said, "What are you doing?" Um, that connection and rapport, which starts from day one, you know, you don't even know that bond and that build. Um, I think was so important, um, and our parents didn't really care if we won or lose. It was just give it your best shot. You know, it was how you carried yourself on the court or on the field. Um, it was more important to um, have character, have high integrity than, than cheat and win. That would be the worst. And we, we, like Cameron said, um, a lot of these things are, are caught, not necessarily taught. You watch your parents interact uh, with other people. Um, and you see kids will see a difference, right? If there's a, a diff between how they treat other people here or there and what the reality is versus the pretense. Um, we had a, we were lucky enough to have a relationship with three of our grandparents and just sort of see how they interact. So I think kids, there's this tremendous osmosis that's happening uh, from when you're in the womb um, of example, but also like, um, you know, do your parents unconditionally love you and what is there that net and safety net to go out into the world and and take risks and all those things so i i think that's a huge part talking about unconditional love your story guys is truly one of the greatest stories of the 21st century so far from you know two global paradigm changing enterprises and everything else Dad, your story is pretty incredible, a homeless to Harvard and what you've done. I've had stories written about me because of Hollywood and various roles I've played. But one story that is not necessarily told, um, which makes up a bit of your character, is, is losing your sister. You know, we know each other because we went to college together. 
I think for maybe two weeks, we were in a band together. Well, I never, I never speak about this publicly. And it was a long time ago, but when I was in college, my sweet younger sister um, started becoming really sick and uh, through depression and otherwise, it was just a slow motion death in front of my eyes. And I loved her very much. And uh, she died now over 10 years ago. And uh, it changed who I am. And it took a long time and it tore our family apart. We have a close family and, I guess my initial question is, if you feel comfortable talking about it, um, how do you guys keep her memory alive today? Yeah, yeah. it's it's a great. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, and I'm not sure we ever talked about this, um, but um, but for this podcast, really connecting on this subject. But um, our story, our sister Amanda's story sounds a lot like your sister's story. Um there was two losses in a sense. We lost her, um, obviously when she passed from this world, but something happened with mental illness a few years before, um, where this slow motion, uh, movie was unfolding between our eye uh, before our eyes when we were about starting about, I want to say senior year of high school and freshman year of college. And then it culminated in about, uh, the, the summer of our, of our sophomore year. And ultimately, um, you know, if anybody thinks we have the talent or whatever in our family, we were actually the runs growing up. Amanda was the shining star. She was the star athlete, star of the play, academic honor roll. I mean, she was the, 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 um, the real leader. Um, and we were always, um, her younger brothers. And still to this day, when I think of it, even though she passed at 23 and we're now 39, I see her up here ahead of us. Um, I'm not sure we'll ever fully know what happened. Um, it's a mental health thing. Um, she ultimately became depressed. Um, and, and I think that is ultimately what, what she succumbed to. Um, but you know, we, we, we keep her memory alive always trying to learn about this stuff, um, grow. We actually, so when we went to the Olympics, we named our rowing show, the Amanda Jacine. Her name was Amanda Jacine Winklevoss. So we did it. We had a great Olympics. Um, we didn't win, but we made the grand final. It was our first international regatta at 28 years old. The winners were actually 36. It was their fourth Olympics. Rowing is this type of sport where you get better with age to some extent. Um, so, there's a part of us that felt um, that she was there with us and helping us through those semifinals and heats. Um, but, you know, I think, I think, uh, you, you know, she's with us. I think about her a lot um, in times of especially difficult times, um, you know, creating that space and reflecting it's, it's the worst thing, you know, to lose anyone, um, especially for a parent. Uh, there's no word, there's no word that, in, in the English language, at least, that describes that. You've got widow, widower, uh, orphan, but the concept of a parent losing a child is is so is so difficult. And, you know, something that I think we'll never fully appreciate until we have families one day. Um, but, you know, it's 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 tough, but I think our our reaction has always, we've been very fortunate where our reaction has always been like, if something uh, negative happened, we're just going to work harder. We're going to double down. We're going to make the Olympics. 
we're going to, someone took our idea, we're going to start a new company. And, you know, there's kind of like, you see people in this world, they, they sort of break one way or the other, the, 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 um, a negative thing happens and they sort of lose it. You know, they, they lose their will or their fight. And we've always sort of doubled down. It's sort of hardened us, which is a great thing. But also at the same time, you don't always keep climbing those mountains. You know, there is, there is that balance. So anyway, it's, it's, it's a long witted answer. Um, and it's just, it is part of our story. Um, you know, we were very fortunate, um, to have Amanda as long as we did. Um, our family grew closer. Um, it was obviously devastating, the worst thing that you can ever imagine, but it, it did push us together. Sometimes you see parents, there's a huge reflection, you know, is this union the right thing? Am I actually in the career path I want? And uh, a lot of those questions um, were were answered with us getting closer. Um, you know, I think we all felt um, strong about the paths we were cutting. And ultimately, we just tried to uh, make the best of it and move forward in her honor. Uh, Cameron and I recently gave uh, the new Performing Arts Center to the high school we all went to, Greenwich Country Day School, and loved so much in her honor. Um, so there's little ways where we can kind of carry her and and um, tell the story, you know, and also um, keep her memory alive. And we're we're not um, we're not at this point in our lives, um, um, but I think I'd like to learn more about what may have happened and find ways to support uh, institutions or or research or or whatnot that, that man cover some of those, uh, those answers so that other people don't have to go through what we went through and, and ultimately what your family went through. Yeah. Tyler, uh, it's interesting because we lost Texan at the age of 24 year. Amanda was 23. And, uh, what was known then about what goes on in the brain was totally limited. A lot of progress has been made. We had all that, historical research going into heart and cancer. A lot of progress has been made there. Now, for example, the brain center here at uh, UT Southwestern, uh, they're all over the country now. This is the cutting edge of research. So I hope that for your sake and for our sake, we do find answers, but also in finding those answers can help others that don't have to go through what your sister and my daughter, my sister went through. Uh, yeah. But a lot of progress is being made. Cameron? Yeah, no, that's that's definitely uh, brings some hope and and very sorry for your guys' loss. And it sounds like, you know, you, you went through a very similar experience. And and I remember meeting Texana um, at Harvard a few times. I mean, she's beautiful, smart, just uh, incredibly talented individual. Um, and 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 mental health is just such a powerful thing. And and for us, I mean, this is going back. 20, 20 years and 20 years ago is a, even a harder um, subject to sort of discuss because it, I think the awareness was, was, was much lower than, than it is even today. And I think we're still sort of um, learning more and more as we go. But one of the, the more challenging things is I think that the, the two and a half, three year struggle that our family went through, I think 
you know, uh, if you haven't gone through it or been around someone who has, it's hard to understand. It's, it's almost easier to say, you know, uh, when someone gets cancer or, or dies in a car accident, it's just a very, you know, easy, tangible thing to sort of understand and, and mental health in many ways has been sort of, um, uh, you know, hard to understand if you haven't been around it, but if you have, then, then it's, it's a struggle. Um, so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that that is changing and, and people are in general becoming more aware of, of that, um, mental health and, and things and, and research and stuff like that. So, um, that's, that's super, um, hopeful in that regard. Yeah. And I, I'd like to add something, um, for many years, we, we didn't really know how to process this loss. I think the best thing, at least me personally, was continuing to compartmentalize it and then ultimately bury myself in work, whether it was rowing or a startup. Um, and, but it does take a toll on you. And I, I, I realized years later that ultimately I hadn't processed through it. And uh, a few years back, I've never actually shared this publicly, but I actually got a therapist. Um, and that, that, helps. Yeah, that, was, that was the best decision that I've given, uh, done in my life, um, maybe ever, definitely in a long time. Uh, it was the best gift I've ever given to myself. Um, ultimately, I didn't realize uh, how much of of uh needing this therapist or getting a therapist had to do with the loss of my sister. But, um, you know, I found my way there and then realized that there was just so much that I hadn't processed through and had to learn. And so to all those people who have lost people or are going through difficult times, it's hard for a, a guy who, especially in our culture, who's been an athlete, um, to ask for help, to be vulnerable, because that's, that's just not a quality we're allowed to be. And I'm slowly, I've been learning to, to do that, be vulnerable, ask for help, find professionals. We all have trainers when we go to the gym, right? No, there's no shame in that. And, and but the most important thing is the gym for your mind um, and, and mental health and growth. So I just wanted to share that. It's the first time I've ever shared that um, publicly, but I think it's, it's sort of important. Again, if someone else can hear this story and it can be helpful to them um, to go find the help that they need, um, that would be a great outcome. It's just an impossible emotion to parse. And I felt a lot of shame, you know, until someone has gone through it, it's impossible to explain. But then in addition to that, you know, our, my younger sister, who knows what she died from, but addiction factored into it uh, towards the end. Um, and, you know, the, the confusion and the pain. I mean, when I asked the initial question, how do you keep her memory alive? Like, I don't, when, when you said her name, Cameron, I haven't heard a non-family member say my sister's name in four years. We just don't talk because her, she was so young. And so I'm not in touch with any of her friends and her. So it's, um, it's hard. And there's no, the stigma of just mental health is slowly lowering. The other thing is that, so same story here is that addiction took hold and there's such a pain inside that Amanda reached out uh, for external substances to find some sort of relief. And ultimately she, she succumbed to a drug overdose. Um, we were a private family. 
this was before any of the the Facebook stuff had happened. Um, but because it happened in New York City, the New York Post reporters were all over it. They came to our house. Um, they called our phones. And so there was this whole complication of, of things that what does this all mean? And so, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know why I'm bringing that up other than that's another. You can't, you can't legislate the past tense. I mean, I, when Texana was an undergrad, I remember getting a call at midnight and running to the hospital the first time she attempted her life. And yeah. that was the beginning when I found out she was sick. And for the next four years, and then it's been 10 years and changed since that happened. And I constantly blame myself or wonder what if, and is, is that even productive? You know, what happened? But all I yeah. can do is be of service to other people and listen to them that are going through it in real time. That's really right. kind of all we yeah. can do and be compassionate, be empathetic. In and, terms and, of the, the, and the, I guess my point on that is that she, if you Google her, you may find those stories, right? And her memory was so much different. So to the extent that we can emphasize all of those great years we had with her and that the fact that the person that we lost at the end was really not her the same way, yeah. um, I think that's just important. And I think, I think Bitcoin Billionaires captures that well. Um, but obviously, yeah, we should talk about, we should raise their names and, and, and there shouldn't be a stigma and, and a shame. Like Cameron mentioned earlier, like if someone brought, dies of a brain tumor, you can sort of point to that. And everyone's like, oh, that's so tragic. These situations are much more complex and nuanced and they're pretty unfair to the legacy of, of the people. So I think the more, you know, these kind of conversations, people hear that it's just going to bring down those walls. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I love the fact it is obviously a very hard topic, but I love the fact that we're talking about them. We're keeping their memories alive as we speak. And, and maybe somebody listens to the podcast and, and reaches out for help, gets a therapist um, in terms of like resources, the body keeps the score is an amazing book that, that sort of talks about the impact of trauma whether it's grief and there's sort of um, trauma, big T's, you think of like a car crash and then there's traumas, little T's, whether it's a loss of a loved one or, or someone, you know, has PTSD from, from a war zone or whatever, or you grew up in, in a dangerous part of a city and there's gang violence all around and you, you, in your formative years. So, so um, that's like a great starting point for, for, for all this stuff. And it will sort of start you down a journey of understanding trauma and grief and how to process all that stuff. Um, and then I think there's a, like a sort of a concept of loving, loving um, people in their absence. Um, most, most of our, even the people that are closest to us, we may not see them that often even, and they live in our, our memories and our minds. And, and we, we think of the memories and the moments we have with them. And it's, it's, you know, there's an ability to, to love them, even though they're not here, um, whether they're still on the planet or, or not. Um, so anyway, I think, thank, thank you for, for giving us this space to, to talk about these, these things. And, um, again, sorry for your, for your loss. Um, uh, and, and I appreciate that. Um, happy to segue into, into Bitcoin if, if you guys are ready and willing. Let's just go back. Just tell me 2013 Cyprus. Dad, I can't recall if you were still at the Fed then, but at this point, you I guys was. for several years were fully on board. You were kind of Bitcoin boys. It's 2013. And all of a sudden, a national 
you know, fiat crumbles. Um, maybe kind of, can you just bring us back there uh, roughly 10 years ago, just to kind of start the arc? Sure. So I'll, I'll start in the summer of 2012. Um, we, we had uh, just retired from the national team in rowing. And after putting 15 years of our life into this sport, you build this asset and then you, you sort of, you start to step away and you're like, wait a second, I'm going to leave this, this asset that I've been growing for 15 years. What am I going to do with myself? Am I going to be able to climb another mountain? And um, we sort of stepped back. We had, we had settled with, with Facebook at that time. So we had, um, you know, some resources to start get going. Um, and we started to build Winklevoss Capital, our family office to invest in, in young startups. Um, and, and that was maybe a few months old. And, and we said, you know, let's go, um, we need to get out of the country and, and clear our heads. Let's go to Ibiza of all places. Right. Um, we were not looking for the next big thing. We were we were very much looking for holiday and some fun. Um, and you know, uh, this is actually one of those moments where the social network sort of uh, pays off. It's you know in in spades uh, being being in a movie. Right? There's a lot of negative. Don't get me wrong, um, but there are some positives. And uh, a fellow from Brooklyn recognized us um, on the beach. We were at Blue Marlin. It's a pretty idyllic Mediterranean beach. You know, daybed scene. I mean, the, the, the chapter in the book, that's really what it was. And you're looking out on the Mediterranean and this guy recognized us, started chatting, um, said, Hey, have you guys heard about virtual currency or Bitcoin? And we, we had not at that point, never heard it. First time we heard the word Bitcoin. Um, it sounded far out. And then we did a shot of tequila and it started to make a lot more sense. You know? And we said, all right, tell me more. Um, so we, we sort of, um, uh, I think we connected on Twitter, DM'd, and we got stateside about a week or so later. He started sending some materials. And at that time, um, most of Bitcoin information was on forums like Reddit and the Bitcoin forums. So we started diving in there, reading as much as we could. And there was one point, I think we were at um, you know, our parents' uh, kitchen table in Long Island, and I turned to Tyler and I said, hey, this is either you know, the next big thing are, are total bullshit. <laughs> it's a very binary outcome. Um, and we obviously want the, the direction of this is the next big thing. And I think a lot of that, I think two things, a couple things were, were at play there. One, um, with all due respect, we weren't fed board members. Um, we didn't have decades of capital markets experience and know-how. So we were in a way, uh, you know, open to this crazy new thing and not saying to ourselves, um, well, this could never work because that's not how the financial system works. We were, um, and that's why one of the Gemini core values is beginner's mind. It's sort of uh, the, the values version of that is first principles. And, and so we were, we were sort of open to this thing. And then um, we had seen the power of networks with social networking. And we said, you know, Bitcoin at its core is really a, a value network. It's a money network. It's it, it, if you make the the next movie is not going to be the social network. It's going to be the money network. Um, and money is, you know, has more affinity and people get more, uh, you know, religious about money than anything else. Um, and it was the first money purpose built for the internet that you could literally send around like an email and it had gold lake properties. And we said, you know, this feels like a store of value. 
it feels like everything from from movies to audio everything streaming and going online why not money it's money's time you know and and this was the breakthrough to bring money online and so we started honestly you know we we went into the city within a few days met with some bitcoiners in flatiron which we dub a uh, crypto alley of of new york city and uh, the, the passion and electricity of these individuals was, was so um, electric. They were putting all of their life savings and, and money at the time into Bitcoin. And it's like, you, you know, talk about putting your, your money where your mouth is. Uh, and so we, we just felt it, even if we didn't know it. We're like, this, this is it. And, and we started buying pretty quickly, uh, just the FOMO and being like, we have to be part of this rocket ship. And that's the genesis. Uh, Cyprus came, I think, a year later. It was the bail-in, the bank bail-in in Cyprus, which was probably the first inflection point where we saw Bitcoin start to go parabolic um, with like macro news. And we were we were down in Miami, I think, ready to go to a music conference or a music uh, festival. And we're like, this is this is amazing. You know, uh, life doesn't <laughs> it doesn't get any better. Um, but that that was the first, you know year or two of, of our experience. Hey, it's Miles. You know, this podcast is called Coffee with the Greats because I think we have pretty great guests, but also because I love coffee. I've been drinking it every morning of my adult life, and I've learned two things. One, you can't make fresh coffee from stale beans. And two, running out of coffee is a horrible way to start the day. So my buddy Remington and I, we created Bixby Coffee Roasters to deliver delicious, fresh roasted coffee right to your door. At Bixby, we're committed to sustainably sourcing only the highest quality Arabica coffee from remote farms around the world. We only roast in small batches, and we ship the same day you order to ensure it's always fresh. We created our coffee club to guarantee our fresh coffee is always in stock and on time at your home. And we hired the nicest people on planet Earth to handle customer service. We've got simple, light, medium, and dark roasts, but we also offer organic and single origin selections. We even make Keurig compatible pods, and our shipping is always free. The truth is, it's because of Bixby Coffee that I'm able to bring you these fantastic fireside chats with living legends. So if you're looking for a way to support the podcast, or if you want to upgrade your morning coffee and give Always Fresh a shot, just go to BixbyCoffee.com. That's B-I-X-B-Y coffee.com. Thanks for your support. The way I look at it at the Central Banker, we went from single ledger accounting in the ancient days before the Medici's, right? Single entry accounting. I had three goats. That's all I had. With the Medici's, if I sold those goats and took money in return, you had to have the sale and the you know proceeds on both sides. And then am I right to think of uh, what's happening here with crypto and blockchain, that this is really sort of triple entry ledger, that it's, uh, it's advanced the concept of accounting and trackability. And that those who are mining are, uh, in a sense, 
basically ensuring the accounting system that's been created. That it's a revolutionary encounter system. Is, is that the right way to look at this? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's right. Um, a blockchain is is a fancy way of saying a ledger. It's a record of who owns which Bitcoin. Um, so traditionally, before uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, ledger was held was maintained by a centralized party like a bank or a Federal Reserve. Um, whereas the blockchain is that version, but it's maintained by the Bitcoin miners who are kind of like the referees or the auditors of the network. And so a bank could get have a regulator come in and examine it. Um, it could have an auditor examine it. Um, and the miners perform that function. And they actually approve every Bitcoin transaction, but they do so in blocks of transactions. So transactions are happening in the Bitcoin network. Miners approve them and then write those blocks to the blockchain. So the blockchain is this chain of a block of transactions, hence the name. And that is the, the canon of every Bitcoin transaction and also ownership since the beginning of time, since the Genesis block, the first Bitcoin block ever. So it is, it is very, very different in a centralized and distributed ledger. But you're right, it rhymes with um, ledgers previously that we, that we have, have thought about them. So it's not, a, it's not so difficult. It's a little bit different vernacular, but very similar concepts. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've found, you know, a lot of some ways. Kara Swisher likes to boil it down to everything that can be digitized will be digitized. I've heard you guys describe how, you know, one way to think about it is what Skype did for long distance calls. You know, the, I think about content and, and media and it's all media has been digitized. You know, it wasn't too long ago that my case logic binder DVDs was a very important collection of mine. And, you know, and then if, and, and just the hard assets to do th everything has continued to be digitized. And I first understand long ago the value of cryptocurrency, because theoretically, if I wanted to transfer $50,000 from A to B, OK, but a million dollars to A to B, particularly to other countries, that's really difficult. <laughs> I, I understood kind of the sky, back, but now the uh, proliferation of everything that is just happening through non-fungible tokens and otherwise, the value that that's unlocking by providing scarcity and how you guys, I mean, you said 400 employees at Genbuy. I think two year, a year ago, it was half that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just exponential growth. To my dad's question, I, how are you guys, you guys are doing PR very well, and it's a lot, but this effort to communicate, you know, it's not like you're the official spokesperson, but the, the clarity of these concepts is just slowly coming to the surface as it evolves and changes. Um, is, is that a large kind of part of your weekly energy is public communications, so to speak, outside of private conversations? I mean, definitely uh, education's always been a big part of it. It was personally for us when we heard about Bitcoin, we were actually looking at a Bitcoin company. But to understand the viability of the company that dealt with Bitcoin, we had to understand what Bitcoin was. And you, you brought up a really interesting point, this idea of digital scarcity, because the Internet 
uh, gave us digital abundance. Everyone can stream. Everyone can tweet. You can send a picture around to you know anybody, people. There's there's no limit to how many copies of it of ones and zeros. The blockchain and Bitcoin gave us this blueprint to not only decentralize anything, but create digital scarcity to it. So gold has a scarce supply. Bitcoin supply is actually fixed. Gold's kind of portable. You can carry it around. Bitcoin's as portable as an email. So all of the money qualities that make gold valuable, that we think a society gives gold value over the last thousands or multi-millennia, Bitcoin uh, matches or actually does better. So we think of it as gold 2.0 or digital gold built for the internet. Um, and that's really interesting because the market cap of right now is 10 trillion. The market cap of Bitcoin is, is, is 1 trillion. So we actually wrote a thought piece that we believe um, that if Bitcoin's really gold 2.0, then it has to disrupt gold and have a potential in market cap, which would make a, a Bitcoin um, worth $500,000 a, a Bitcoin. So there still could be Bitcoin right now is 60,000 a Bitcoin. There could be a 10x from here. Um, so we actually think um, it's, it's very early despite all of that. So, but going back, so sort of like the blockchain, the miners, they create this digital scarcity. There's only 21 million, but we're seeing in Bitcoin is like gold, but we're seeing this application into content with NFTs. And so uh, you can create something that's actually unique, one of a kind, uh, a one of one, or there's a 10 of 10 on the blockchain. And the blockchain will ensure that scarcity the same way that it ensures that there's only 21 million Bitcoin and that I can't double spend uh, my Bitcoin. If I if I have a $20 bill and I hand it over to you, I can't turn around and hand it over to Cameron. In the digital world, that's a big problem. And that's the double spend problem that Satoshi Nakamoto, the pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin, solved. And with solving that problem, then we can make digital art an asset a beginning, a middle, and a four corners and sort of package it. And you've seen that um, exemplified no better than the recent sale at Christie's of this digital artist Beeple who sold a single NFT for $69 million because it truly is a one-of-one one and it is enforced by the math in the cryptography of the blockchain. And all sorts of creative uh, creators are learning that um, and finding this is a new way, it's a new medium to to monetize my creativity. Well, and also, also again, it's, it's also to keep a ledger. But I want to drill down on the scarcity thing because I think it's important. Twenty-one million Bitcoin. Uh, what what would you say is the float? I'm just thinking in terms of market terms here. I think so. I think something like nineteen to twenty million are are out out in the wild. Um, and, and that'll continue. There's a happening every four years. So uh, the amount of Bitcoin being minted every 10 minutes to the miner that, that writes the next block of transactions that won the mining competition, I believe it was at 12 and a half. Now it's at six and a quarter. Um, and it will have again in about three, three years or so. And that'll basically trend towards zero um, to when there'll be about 21 million 
Bitcoin in circulation around 2140. But um, the vast majority of Bitcoin is in circulation and a Bitcoin is divisible into 100 million pieces. So I think a lot of people look at $60,000 Bitcoin and say, oh, I'll never own a Bitcoin. Um, the truth is you can come to Gemini and buy, you know, $5 worth of a Bitcoin. Uh, that's what we call stacking sats or stacking Satoshis. It's a, a meme in the Bitcoin world in addition to hodling, which means hold on for dear life or, you know, it's a misspelling hold. Um, and I think that, uh, so the, the, yeah, it is truly a fixed commodity. And, and even if demand were to increase, it won't actually increase supply, unlike gold, where they'll just go, you know, mine for more gold or or drill for more oil, uh, you know, like fracking, which now makes the U.S. a net exporter, um, which is crazy to, to believe. You know, 20 years ago, we were net importers and who would have thought, right? But but there, it, technology and or lower energy will just increase the supply of these commodities similar to, uh, you know, two thirds of above ground gold stock has been mined since the fifties. Um, it's, it's anything but fixed, uh, scarce maybe. Um, so we kind of love that property around Bitcoin. And if you look at the 21 million Bitcoin, there's 46 millionaires in the globe around the globe, which means not all, not if you're a millionaire, you won't be a Bitcoin owner in the future. So there is sort of a time is of the essence situation here where you, you either buy into this real estate, uh, it's a finite amount, or you're 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 gonna be left behind. And I think and I, I would imagine, like other financial instruments, there will be derivatives eventually, there will be options, there will be all kinds of financial instruments that might be written around this as it becomes legitimized, which you are helping it become. Yep. But I want to come back real quick, and then I, I just want to take this a little bit further and ask you about the Chinese digital yuan and how different that is. How are you trying to educate? How do we educate the regulators on this? Because the regulators are still iffy, right? Is that fair to say? They're, 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 so they're not fully understanding of what you're talking about. I, I think um, there are definitely regulators like the New York Department financial services, which understand how, how if you thoughtfully regulate Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, it's a way for New York to remain a financial global capital of the world. And it's a huge opportunity. And there's a number of forward-looking regulators out there. That being said, in the US, it still feels like we're, we're, we're moving too slow. And I think there's there's a tendency to assume that, well, we won the first generation of the Internet, Silicon Valley, and we, we led that technology, that it's sort of just a given that we're going to lead in cryptocurrency. And this is not a Silicon Valley thing. It's not even a U.S. thing. The U.S. is not leading. Asia, there's, there's parts of the world that are way ahead. And the, the digital one, I think, is a perfect example. China will win the first mile of this marathon in that regard. Um, and it's, it's very much, you know, you, you could probably draw parallels to the 60s space race. Um, Sputnik was the first, you know, uh, uh, really humbled the US space program. And then we stepped back and we said, hey, we need to actually get our act together. And and we know how that, that went, but um, we, we got to get our act together in the US and understand that 
you know, the, the talking points that this is Silk Road used by drug dealers, illicit activity, you know, bad for consumers. Like that, those are those are talking points that are now like, you know, almost a decade old. And and you know, treating customers like you know a nanny state, like hey, you don't know, we know what's good for you, and not giving them access to to financial products and crypto, I think is 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 the wrong posture. If you look at the way Xi Jinping looks at the world, it's control and its own population. The digital yuan. We'll be able to, if Tyler does something they don't like, they can levy a penalty or track it down thanks to their enormous capacity here with uh, the blockchain ledger of tracking what people are doing. In my mind, uh, digital currencies, Bitcoin, it was a libertarian impulse. And it completely is counter to what Xi Jinping is trying to do in the Bank of China with the digital renminbi. So I'm, I'm wondering if this probably will encourage further understanding <laughs> or could authorities in the country, in this country or anywhere else look at it as a way to track and control. This is the difference between our societies. I don't believe we're going to go that way. But I think, again, just for my last little note on this conversation, um, we're going to have to educate people. You're going to have to educate people. Mm-hmm. And other big miners are going to have to educate people. They're not as articulate as you guys are. But if this is to be significant and push us into the next frontier of capitalism and markets, we're going to have to achieve better understanding of all this. But you know, you know who you know who educates people sometimes with technology is their kids, right? Like it's it's it, to to harken back to our my grandchildren conversation. Right. But, but here's, here's the thing. I, you keep on saying, how do you educate? How do you educate? I come from it from a point of view of like the consumer humans are loyal to convenience. We're just now getting into consumer applications to this. One of our first guests on this podcast was Ajay Benga, CEO of MasterCard, fabulous guy. And he said, the mission of MasterCard is to kill cash. I thought, really? How crazy. But actually that makes a lot of sense. MasterCard will is is accepting. I mean, we're well beyond, you know, BNY Mellon taking it. I think, you know, for, for non-fungible tokens, that it we're just seeing, oh, this mirrors real human behavior as a consumer. You know, this idea of Provence, right? There's a reason why the real Mona Lisa has plexiglass behind it and they're not hanging some poster of the Mona Lisa that you buy, you know, in the collector economy, not to go on on like a, I, I just think like, look, when we collect something we love out of passion, you know, hey, check out this cool shoe. Yeah, that's a really cool shoe. I love it. Yeah, me too. Do you know who owned it before me? I bought it from Bon Jovi. Like now the shoe's really, really cool because of that ledger. No, I mean it in real life, dad. We think of those things we collect. Guess who owned that? Guess who you bought your house from? You bought yeah, it from this fancy person you admired. And so that it's like, that's just human to me. And what you're on what you're at the vanguard of is just the next generation of like, oh, this just layers onto the human condition better. And so I think that's edu- how do we educate? Make it more convenient for the consumer is my sense. Yeah, I, I have to go, guys. Uh, Miles, carry on. This is one of the best ones we've ever done. And as again, if you added your two ages together, you're probably the youngest people we've interviewed. Um, Miles, uh, so yeah, it's it's sort of I think you really you've really sort of hit on something where 
um, you know, 23andMe, right? Why are people, why are we, we spitting into a tube, mailing it off to a lab? We want to understand our DNA, our ancestry, our family tree, where we've come from, what we're sort of, uh, you know, made of, so to speak. And, and I think the DNA of, of, of art, DNA of a home, right? Who, who, what's the history behind these things is super important to us as social beings, and an NFT gives provenance to to the creative arts like nothing before, um, and I think that is part of that exciting driver. Um, and you know who owned the pair of shoes or whatever. But I also think there's a practical thing, which is kind of um, funny. I think you, you know you're. I, I know you're a SAG member. You, you get royalty checks, and they they come in the mail, right? And and. Uh, Sometimes, you know, something you've done a long, long time ago, it just starts to to whittle down to to like pennies and the postage is worth more. I saved those checks. The lowest I got was two cents uh, for a check. Yeah. And uh, so I'm not going to deposit that. <laughs> an NFT of that or something. Right. Um, but I think there's a rights management. There's a there's a payment situation where where why not send that through Ethereum via stablecoin or something like that. Um, so I think. Um, uh, the the entire creative industry and and how we view art, um, both as a canvas, you know, what it what is art? Where does it live? Does it live in a museum? Um, does it live on a street? Does it live on an NFT in cyberspace? Um, and then also just the practical, like the payments nature. Amazon probably, you know, you can get a package almost to any corner of the earth, even if it's on a motor dirt bike in the last mile of delivery, but good luck getting payment for that, that good. Right. Um, and so there's, I think a lot of interesting, you know, uh, directions this is going to go over the next decade. Now I need to ask you a question. Um, ask me there, anything. <laughs> okay. Um, tell us about, uh, the, the Tom Cruise deep fake, you know, it, it's sort of, uh, it's always fun to see a friend trending on Twitter, right? You look across and you're like, oh, I know that guy. Um, I think I actually first saw it on your Instagram and I was like, oh wow, this is this is insane. This is gonna, this is going to go viral in in a big way. And then I, you know, went on Twitter and you're trending. And uh yeah, I mean, where where do you see this this going? It, 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 in one ways it's so cool. There's this technology. I mean, the 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 stuff that Fincher used in the social network to create right. two characters, right? That that's a decade old technology, and it's just now that much uh, further along. But where do you see all this going? Uh, well, I'll tell I'll, I'll tell you the story because it's been insane. I'll also just thanks for listening to another great episode of Coffee with the Greats. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to this podcast so that the next episode will appear magically on your phone when it comes out. And check out Bixby Coffee to discover a better way to brew at home. Use code GREATS for 30% off your first order and free shipping at BixbyCoffee, B-I-X-B-Y coffee.com.